We're going to be getting into today's message. It's about, uh, about building this community of grace as we go through the book of Ephesians. And I hope as you've gone through this book of Ephesians, as we've, we've hit this, that you've um, been able to see, at least for the first half of it, why it is we, we would even have the ability to have a different way of life, what God has done for us. Because the next three weeks, we get to talk about what this new way of life looks like. And it is so much better than we were called out of. But we have to be rooted in why we have that change in order for it to be uh, sustaining. So uh, today we're going to have a, a memory verse. It comes to us from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3. And uh, we'll be talking about this passage today. It's in our reading. Um, and it says this, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. That's a powerful verse because it gives us something to do. Don't you love it in the Bible where you actually find something that's like so very clear? It's like, do this. Yay! We got something to do. Make every effort. Now this is on the back of we are saved by God's grace through faith and it's a gift of God out of works so that no one can boast, right? That we're right on the back of that. That God has done everything for us and now he's given us something powerful to do. And isn't it great that we have every effort? It's not like make every effort, you know, to force people to believe like you. That would be hard. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. This is good stuff. This is what we're supposed to be about. And how? Through the bond of peace. Not through war, not through strife, not through, you know, debating all this horrible thing. Through the bond of peace. That is powerful, freeing stuff. This is what we can be giving our, ourselves to. Good stuff. So uh, we'll be getting to it. Why don't you turn your Bibles to uh, Ephesians 4 um, so we can actually get into studying God's Word. If you don't, didn't bring your Bible today, that's fine. we got lots of Bibles back there. They look a lot like this. They're on a bookshelf. If you want to grab one of those. If you need a Bible, just keep it our gift to you. And we even have these nice little bookmarks in your seat back pocket there too, which is a helpful uh, thing for you. So um, as you're turning to, your, uh, to Ephesians 4, and if in our Bibles, it's on page 815. Just to make that easy, let me give you a little bit of a recap as to what's been happening, because I, I think that there is, there is power when we read the Word of God in its context. And so up to this point, we have three chapters. Paul has been uh, telling us why it is that we have this new life, right? What is, what is the foundation of the Christian experience? And it's grace, okay? That if you haven't been here the last couple of weeks, uh, there you go. But in God's grace, what he's given us we didn't deserve, he's done some amazing things for us. He's given us gifts. The God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit has empowered us to live a whole new life. He's, God is in this. The next thing he's done is he's given us a high position in Christ. He's, he's changed who we were. We were dead sinners. We were separated from God. We were unable to, to connect with him on our own, and he's changed our position to being part of his citizenship, part of his family, right? And, and, and really even part of that is we get to be ambassadors, part of his work. Great things that he's done for us. Because of all of that, now we get to pivot, and we get to change into now, what does this new life look like that Christ has purchased for us? We died to the old way. We lived a new life. We all are pretty familiar with the old way of life, but what about the new one? What's that like? Now he begins to talk about that. And it's important for us to remember the first half of this book in order to, as we apply the second half. See, a lot of times we, we, we read the second half of this book and we forget the first half and it becomes like, oh, these are horrible duties. I have to live this new way. And it's without the grace and the love it becomes law. It becomes a burden. And what happens in that when I'm doing it just out of just raw duty is that I see what I'm doing and I know my successes and failures and, and it's helpful for me to see that other people fail too, doesn't it? So then I become pretty judgmental. Then I can look and point out all your failures and we don't build each other up and we get derailed. So we need to remember that we're here by God's grace 
and that God is the one who's empowering all of this. Now, there's something else here that before I begin, in these next three sermons, as we'll be going through the second half of the book of Ephesians, is important. There's a word that wasn't translated it was interpreted. And it's important that God be right interpretation, but I think there's some power in the word. So I'm just going to mention it here right at the beginning. And that is the word walk. And it's not going to be in your NIV Bible because they changed that. It says in verse 1, it says, As a prisoner of the Lord, I then urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. And that live a life there in the Greek is the word for walk. Okay? And in the second half of Ephesians, the word walk is, fi- is in there five times. Now they interpreted it correctly. It's about how the life that we live. Right? But I think Paul chose that word walk for a reason. The new kind of life that we live in Christ is very much similar to how we walk. Okay? And, and it's important for us to see that. Um, and the reason I point that out is that um, when Lazarus was dead and then he rose again, he had a new life, he was instantly fully alive, wasn't he? Like he wasn't like mostly alive. And then he like grew into more and more life the longer he was there. Like he was fully alive the moment he walked out of there. And I think sometimes we as Christians, we want to live this new life and we expect that we walked out of the, the tomb, right? We new life in Christ and we should be fully alive, fully mature in Christ. And so all the things that we live about this new, we read about this new life in the second half of Ephesians, we think should be absolutely 100% true for my life in its fullness today. And what happens is because it's not that way, is that we get disappointed and we think, well, this is impossible. And if it's impossible, then why even try and we get discouraged? There is a walk of faith that is necessary. When we think about a walk, you have to learn how to walk step by step. And have you ever watched a baby learn how to walk? It's so fun because it makes you feel athletic. It doesn't matter who you are, <laughs> right? Like they're so happy they can stand. They're like, whoa. And they take that first step. They're like, right? And it's not pretty, but it's a step, Right? And then they fall down. And then what do you do as a parent once they fall down? You're like, you loser. Why aren't you walking? No, of course you don't do that. You're all excited. You're like, wow, you took a step. We're the children of God. We're learning to walk this new life. And you realize that when we start taking steps, God is excited for us. When we fall down, he's not like, hey, well, you are, I guess you're never meant to walk. No, what does he do? He helps us back up. And we learn to take that next step. Another thing about a walk in faith is we recognize this, is that steps take us somewhere, don't they? There's progress. And in the Christian life, there should be progress that we see in our, in, our, in our Christian walk, right? Our Christian life should be going somewhere. There should be difference in our life, purpose, motivation, but also difference. We should be seeing a transformation. We shouldn't be the same people today that we were when we first accepted Christ, unless you just accepted Christ, Right? If you haven't, and you've been walking with Jesus for a while, that you should see I've traveled some ground. I've actually, I'm actually living in this life a little bit more. Something else I find in this, that I love the, I, the concept of walk, is, uh, as we see Paul uh, put it in there, is that walking takes balance, doesn't it? Have you ever tried to walk after you've uh, got off of like a merry-go-round or done that little thing where you stick your head on a, on a bat and you spin around and then you try to walk? Have you ever done that? Do it. It's so fun. Um, <laughs> You don't have balance, and you're like, whoa, and you fall down, and it, you can't do it, right? In order to walk, you need to, you need to exercise extreme uh, skill and balance. Like, look at this, right? I'm not tipping to the right, not to the left. I'm, I'm able to walk. Now, the thing is like this. That's, I think, in the book of Ephesians, there's a balance there, isn't there? The first half is all about what God has done for us. It's this grace. The second half is all about obedience, right? Now, what do we get to do? And the Christians, when we try to live the life 
with only one or the other, we walk out of balance and we're, we're like a person that just got off a merry-go-round and we just kind of spin in circles and we stumble around and our Christian faith doesn't take us anywhere. At least not anywhere easy or quick and we find we fall a lot. We see, what, if you are living a Christian life based upon only grace, God has done it all, I don't have to do anything, all that kind of stuff, you're out of balance. And what happens is a person like that, they kind of wander off into grace abuse, don't they? And they let the old way of life, all the sins, all that other stuff, it, it dominates their way of life, and there's no joy, no power in living. And they kind of fall off the path that God wants us to. Now, on the other side, people that are just applying rules, right? It's just about obedience and just obedience, and there's no grace or not enough of it, and there's no balance there. They wander off the other side of the path, don't they, into legalism, hardness of heart, the... The faith no longer is about joy or love. It's just about duty. It's about power. It's, it's no way to live. And we wander off the path that God has for us. There's something in this walk of faith that we need to have in its balance. And the book of Ephesians, even in just how it's designed, shows us. It's this merging that we have this amazing grace that God has done for us and this, now this amazing life that we have the opportunity to live. There is grace and obedience, and we need both. And so I love this as it shows how do we begin to walk in this faith? Well, we've got all the grace. God has done it all. Now are we beginning to live according to it? So um, let's get into what is this walk of faith. The first thing the walk of faith leads us into is unity. Right? A, a church that is built on God's plan it begins is a church that is built in unity. And uh, so in, in uh, chapter 4, verses 1 uh, through 16, Paul talks about this, and he breaks it down into three different things. His argument is three points. First one is he talks about the grounds for unity. Where is the place that unity is supposed to be in the church? Because if we build our church on anything other place than this, then we're building it in the wrong spot, and eventually the unity will fall apart. So he gives us, this is what we're supposed to be unified in, right? The foundation. The next thing he gives us is what are the gifts that God has given us to, to make sure that we have unity, that we can actually build a unified church in this area. And the last thing he talks about then is what is the goal of all of this? What is God after in our lives for having a unified church? So that's what he does. So we'll go to the first one first, and we'll talk about the grounds for unity. And so we get into to verse 1, and it says this, the first gra- thing for unity is grace. It says, I want you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Now, is it worthy of the calling you have earned? No, is it worthy of the calling that you deserve? No, it's worthy of the calling you have received. And where is he referencing back to? I don't know, maybe the first three chapters where he talks about this new life that God is giving us, this new calling that we've received from God, that, that we've been saved by God's grace through faith and not by works so that no one could boast. This new calling has received this whole new humanity that he's made us, no longer Jews or Gentiles, those that were separate or those are new. We are now one and, and unified before God and we have got the same God, same Father. We are unified because of what God has done. It's grace. Now we have received this new life and we're supposed to be unified in it. Now churches that find unity on other things are churches that are built upon uh, precarious ground. If we're unified and say the personality of the preacher, right? What happens if I say something that offends you? Then some people get mad and all that stuff and the church is split. Isn't that what happens? Or how about if we're unified on the style? We're all North Americans mostly here and so we like certain style and, and we want to have certain style of music or whatever. What happens if uh, the culture changes and some people come in that have part of that new culture and they want things a little different? What happens? 
There's wars, actually wars in churches come up because we don't like the style of something and then we break apart. We begin with grace because grace levels us. When we start with grace, we live up to this calling that God has given us. We realize that the church is not my church and it's not your church either. It's Christ's church. He's the one that purchased it. He owns it. And I realize that I'm part of this church. I have the opportunity part of it because of what he has done, right? I was a dead sinner, and now I'm alive in Christ, right? I was separated from him in my thinking. I was separated from my actions. I was separated from him in all kinds of things. And because of what Christ has done for me, now I can be part of this. I have a seat at the table. It's a great thing. I'm not perfect, and I am not the leader of this pack, You're not perfect and not the leader of this pack. This is God's church, and grace reminds us of that, doesn't it? It reminds us that I'm here only because of what God has done. And so it's not about what I want to get done here. It also reminds me, grace reminds me of this. Why did I need grace? Because I messed up, right? My way of life didn't work. Look at this whole world. God has said, listen, Adam and Eve, she said, listen, you can live your life according to my way, or you can do it your way. And Adam and Eve said, we would like to do it our way, thank you very much. And he let them. And humanity, ever since then, has been running this world our way. Now, God, out of his mercy, keeps telling us, hey, there's a different way of doing this. But we keep saying, no, we want to do it our way. And what happens when we do it our way? All kinds of bad stuff. We got wars, right? We got hatred. We got all kinds of crazy death. We've got, you know, misery. We got people robbing from each other. We've got crimes. We, got, we don't even agree on what is right. That's pretty crazy. That's what humans, the humanity, that's the way we do things. That's our culture that we've created. And God has said, I'm calling you out of that. And so grace reminds us that we don't have the answers, that we don't do it the best way. And that's why we turn to God. We unify on this, that none of us are more righteous than the other. None of us are more worthy of being here than the other. We're all in this together because of what God has done. This is his church. Let's do things his way. And we all agree on that. It brings us unity, doesn't it? Because if we say, hey, I want to do it this way, and if my way is outside of what God wants to do, we could say, well, that's a great opinion, but no, we're going to do things God's way, and we would encourage you to join us in this, right? That's, That's a great place to find unity. Next thing that we find is that God does have a way of doing things. God has a different culture. Sometimes we call those things the culture of Morse or whatever, kind of this way that we naturally just go about and do things in, in society. We expect stuff to be done a certain way. We get used to that and sociologically. Well, God has that in his kingdom too. And we'll call them morals because that's what culture kind of understands them. And it's a different way of living. And so because of the grace that we have of God, we have the opportunity to living a different kind of life. There's, different, there's a different culture that we're called to. And he talks about that next. In verse 2 it says, Be completely humble and gentle and patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. You see, there's a different way of life. Now think about the, the last political debate that we saw. Completely humble. Do we find that? Gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love. Were those, if you would have saw that, if you had like a, a multiple choice thing on there, was that what you would select? Is that was the culture of the bait? Think about the, yeah, think about this. Think about the last movie you watched or the last television show series that you walked through. Humble, gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. You see those in those? 
Of course not. That's not the culture of this world, is it? That's not the morals of this world. When I turned uh, 40 this last year, it was great. I had an awesome party. And uh, one of the things I got to do was put together all of the, the number one chart-topper chart hits from the last 60 years because Jeff did his party with me too, so we did our 100th. And it was great. And it was fun as I listened to the number one hits for the last 60 years to listen to, to society devolve, right? Uh, and I wasn't, life wasn't perfect 60 years ago, but I'll tell you what, it was interesting listening to the music and you can just listen to society, what was important to people because these are the number one things and what spoke to our hearts. 60 years ago, most of the songs were about this. Love... Uh, honor. There was, you know, there was actually this song like the Green Beret, dun, dun, dun. like it was really not a catchy tune. I don't know how it got number one, but it was there. And but it was all about honor and love and and uh, you know deeper things, right? And then as you go through time, it's interesting. You kind of listen to society kind of just unravel until we get up to a modern day. Most of the songs that top the charts now are, are things like this: "I am the best, and you are not me," right? <laughs> That's if I could summarize it. I'm going to get things my way. I'm all about the pleasure, right? I'm living for now, right? And if you get in my way, watch out because I'm the best, right? That is it. There's a different ethic in this world. The people that we lift up to, to lead the free world have a different ethic than what we find in this, don't we? The people that we lift up to lead our corporations and we look up in life and say, these are the people we're supposed to be looking to, our, our sports heroes and all of that. Different ethic, don't they have now? It's all about, I'm the greatest. You're not me. There's a different ethic at work in, in this world. Most of the songs are about, not only do I have the power, but I'm going to use that power to gratify my own nature, my own desires. That's the ethic of this na- age. That's what we see on TV and the movies and all that, and it shouldn't surprise us. We understand this, that God is calling us to a different culture. And if you are alive in Christ, you have been born into a new culture, and we get to live in that. Doesn't it sound so much better? Completely humble and gentle and patient, kind, bearing with one another. Wouldn't you want to be part of that kind of culture? Because that's what we've been called to. Next thing it tells us is that unity is because we have to share the same culture. We're unified in this. We all get to kind of share in this, this new atmosphere. Is that we have a new doctrine, there's a reason, there's new truth that we understand. And it's not actually new truth, it's that we actually understand what truth is. We, we say to God, okay... Uh, there is a reason why we're doing this is because we, we accept some things as being very true and because of that, it changes the culture that we live in. And so those come very, it comes next to us in that passage, verse 6 or 5 and 6, or 4, 5 and 6, that there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called with one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. Now, there's a couple of words that repeat themselves. The first one is one. Did you get that? Want me to read it again? There's one, one, one. Why, what is he saying here? We're in this together. There's no class A, class B Christian, right? We're in this together. We have the same spirit, same God, all that kind of stuff. None of us are better than the other. And we all are unified on this. There are central truths of the Christianity that we all agree upon, and we say because of that, we're in this together. And because of that, we can agree upon this new way of life, this new culture he's called us to. And because of that, well, then we can live in this amazing grace that he's given us. The second thing we find in that is another one is overall, in all, through all. Did you get that? There was one God, but there's lots of us. Have you counted? And it's not just us. You know, we've got other believers scattered all throughout Estes and all throughout Colorado and all throughout America and all throughout the world. We're not better than them and they're not better than us. We're in this together. 
same culture, same God. We pray to the same Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, right? And when we get that, perhaps sometimes what, diff, what separates us is not nearly as big as what holds us together. And so over the last 500 years, haven't we had a culture of separation? All the reasons why we don't want to associate with those stinky brothers and sisters in Christ. I don't believe that is what God has called us to. We have the same Lord, same Father. Right, there is core to our doctrine that is bigger than anything else. Does it mean that all the other important issues are not important? No, those are very important. But what are we doing with them? That's what matters. How are we handling these, these difficult things? Are we using them to separate, to belittle, to separate other people and to condemn them? If we're doing that, then we've, we've missed the point of, of this culture that we've been called to. Because doing that is very, well, it doesn't look humble to me. Doing that is not gentle or patient or bearing with one another, is it? There's a new culture that allows us to be able to have unity in faith. Now, how do we do that? Well, God's given us some gifts to do that. Because it's hard. Isn't unity hard? Don't you find that it's difficult? Have you ever spent, when you were a kid, did you spend the night at like a friend's house for like a week or whatever, like your parents went on vacation? Was it just me? Okay. Yeah, just me. My parents are like, we're so done with Aaron. So we're gonna buy. I don't even know if they left town. But here's the thing first three days me and my best friends were like yeah fourth day you're like oh i can see why they have you in the farthest bedroom in the house right the fifth day you're like i don't know if i can stand this guy by the time my parents came back i was like please let me go home right this is somebody i liked and i felt i'm sure they felt the same way about me right here's the thing it's sometimes hard to bear with one of the more we get to know somebody the harder it is to love you ever notice that yeah and, and I think that's because it, deep down in here, we, we all have things that are, are difficult. There is still that old nature that's, that's kind of hard to love. But God loves us to the very core, and he calls us to do the same thing. Well, how are we as a church supposed to be intimately connected, one spirit? I mean, the spiritual level, right? To the same, We're supposed to be connected. How do we do that? Well, God, he doesn't left us on our own. He doesn't just say, hey, be unified. I've given you proper doctrine. Good luck. Look what he's given us. Chapters uh, 4, actually, but verse 7 he begins this. He says, To each one of us, grace has been given as Christ appointed it. So God is helping us out here. Right? We all have that grace. And then it says, This is why he says, and now it gets kind of cryptic, and we'll explain this. But it says, When he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. And what does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? And he who descended is also the one who has ascended higher than all of the heavens in order to fulfill the whole universe. Okay, y'all looking at me like, what? Okay, let me explain. Okay, Jesus dies, and then he resurrects. And he walks around for like 40 days, and so people can see him, and he teaches, and all that kind of stuff, so they know he's alive. Then what does he do? He ascends. That's who we're talking about, the one who ascended to above. Now, when Christ ascended, what happened? The Holy Spirit descended. Now, is the Holy Spirit like a different God than Jesus? No, it's the same one who ascended as the one who also descended. That's the whole idea. We get this trinity, which is bigger than our brains. We can't figure it out, but we know it's true. So God, who ascended, also descended. God didn't abandon us. And what did he do when he descended, when he came to these lower earthly regions? He brought gifts, didn't he? And those gifts were the purpose of unifying the church. And everybody, every one of us has received at least one of those, right? That's he's giving gifts to everybody. All of us have those gifts. That's the mercy, that grace of God. So cool. That means this. The gifts that God has given you, when they are being properly used, should be edifying and building up the church, not tearing it apart. 
So think about your Christian service. If it is actually building the body of Christ, you're using the gifts well. If it's destroying the body of Christ, you may need to re- you know, think about how you're doing it. Right? Think about when I was uh, what, uh, nine years old. My dad gave me a cool little tool set. Right? And a little the tool belt and I had a little hammer in it and screwdriver and all that kind of stuff. And tools are meant to build. And um, I used mine to destroy a birdhouse. <laughs> and I got in big trouble, right? Because I was using my tools, God gave me something to build and I used it to destroy. You've been given gifts, how you use them matters, but the gifts were given to build the body of Christ. So, so that's a good thing. But God didn't just give you individuals gifts to build the body of Christ. He's given us, the corporate body of Christ, gifts. That's pretty cool too. It says this. So Christ himself. So Jesus is up there thinking about, what on earth shall I be giving my bride? This is what he says. Christ himself says, he gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the pastors and the teachers to equip his people for good works of service, so the whole body of Christ may be built up until we all reach the unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, which is a great thing that God wants for us. Do you hear what that passage says? That God gifted us with something? It says this, that I am God's gift to you. <laughs> it's a joke. <laughs> it's actually not a joke. First service, God, is it? But actually, quite literally, too, I am God's gift to you. Think about that. That's humbling for me to be thinking about. God provided me to pour into your life. And if you're thinking if there's any of those pastors or teachers or prophets or evangelists, if they're all about the church pouring and serving them, building their ministry, they've missed the point, haven't they? The job of a pastor is to pour into your life and to build church. See, that's a great thing. God loves you so much that he has actually taken humans and said, I want the sum total of your life to be this. I want you to build my body in unity. And you can see all the different ways that he's done that. I mean, you get the, the whole spectrum. You have apostles, the ones that, that are the forerunners. They plant the churches, right? They get out there. They get the faith out there. You have the prophets, those who are able to speak the truth, right? So our tr- churches are built on more than just good ideas or good personalities. You have the, the evangelists, people who actually go out and bring believers in, right? Because it's hard to have a church if there's nobody to have a church Right? And then you have, you have the pastors, the shepherd, and to grow and to help and to nurture. And then you also have, you have teachers to remind us of this great doctrine, the truths of God that we're supposed to be unified on. You see, God doesn't just gift you personally. He's gifted us as a church. which should, should tell you something about your own personal walk. If you're trying to live the Christian life outside of a church, you're missing out on some of the best things. There are, there are gifts that you need that God has provided for you in and through the church. You need to be part of the body. We need to be unified. You know that unity does something really cool for us? Is it gives us purpose and it and allows us to fulfill some things that God wants us to do. And that's what he talks about next. Those gifts of unity, the whole grounds of unity on being grace and what God has done and this new way of life, there's a purpose for it. There's a goal to this. And he talks about it in verses 12 all the way to 16. And the first thing he says is that we're supposed to be equipped for ministry. It says, says uh, that he gives us prophets, pastors, evangelists, pa- uh, teachers to equip his body for the works of service. I'm not supposed to do all the work of ministry, you know, because I can't. I am ill-equipped to do that. God equipped me to equip you. That's what I do. But there are so many needs in the world that God has called you to reach. You personally have work to do. You're supposed to be equipped, though. 
And so to be here on Sunday is one of the ways I can start to equip you, but allow me to pray for you helps me equip you, to talk with you, to, to, to go through it and help you develop as, as a believer. Let us equip you, but you're supposed to be equipped. There's unity. There's a place that we're supposed to meet together so you can be equipped. And if you're equipped, guess what? You are empowered. And you're empowered to do great things. The next thing we're supposed to be is we're supposed to be built up and unified in faith and knowledge. So our equipping, it says the very next thing there, is that, that we prepare his people for good works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Right? We're supposed to actually grow. Not just in, in, in numbers. We're supposed to grow in depth. We're supposed to grow in faith and faithfulness. Our f- church family needs to grow. All churches do. And that's the purpose of God. Why? Because there are more people still in this world who have no idea who Jesus is. They may think they do, but they have no idea. And they have no hope in their life. You have work. And we need to be built up, and the body needs to become stronger and stronger. And how long are we supposed to do this? How do we know when we've reached the point where we're like, okay, I'm good? Well, it says this, until we all reach the unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God, becoming mature, attaining the whole measure and the fullness of Christ. Right? That, that's the point in which we say, okay, good, we, we've got this, we're good. Right? That's the point you can stop going to the gym because you, ma- you got your max, right? You're good. So, tell all of us, it's not just about you. There's that all again. We're all in this together. If there's a brother or sister in Christ that is still straggling along, having a hard time, they need a church family to be part of. Until that happens, I don't care how mature you are in Christ, you need to be part of a church family so that you can help us grow and become more and more mature. Also, even in your own life, I don't know if anybody's ever said to you, but man, you're perfect. I mean, like, when I read about Jesus and I see your life, it's like, what? They're the same. Hasn't happened to me yet. (laughs) Which means that we all have work to to do, doesn't it? That we all still can keep growing closer to God in, in Christ. We need a church for that. Now, when we, as we mature, there's something that we gain in our life, something wonderful, and it's called stability. Look at how Paul describes this. He says, then we'll be no longer like infants tossed back and forth by the waves. Right? Which is, um, at first you think, why is he throwing babies into the ocean? That was my first thought when I first came, but it's not the picture that he has there in the Greek. It's just bad punctuation. The idea is saying that when we're immature, we're like a baby, Immature Christians are tossed back and forth, you know, in their belief, kind of like a wave in the ocean is tossed back and forth. That's the imagery, right? So here's the thing is that it says we're not supposed to be that way anymore. Do you want stability in your faith? you want to have a, this ability to, to not always be like, oh, man, that's a new idea, and maybe that's true, or am I believing the right thing? All that turmoil that comes into our life. Grow up in faith. That's what it tells us to do. And we can have that. And as we grow up in faith, we attain maturity. And it says then, and then we won't be tossed about by every wind of teaching and cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, it says, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. So we want stability in our faith. We don't want to be a church that's always like, oh, what is true? Here's this whole new thing in culture. Maybe it's new. Maybe it's right. No, truth is truth. And we can live our life on it. That's a great thing. We have to grow up. And as we grow up in faith, we find maturity. And by maturity, we find stability. So that's one of the purposes of unity. We can't get to maturity if we're not unified. There's no place for us to at least agree on what truth is. Next thing that we find is, is in that, that maturity, that the stability, we find that we find submissiveness to Christ. It says that 
um, that every, in every respect, the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. It's talking about, listen, we, we're going to follow Jesus. He's the head of this body. So in every respect of our life, we're going to obey him. Mature believers put our, our life under the control of God. Why do we do this? Oh, I don't know. Maybe the first half of, of Ephesians has talked about you were dead. You tried living things your own way. The way that humans try to run humanity wrecks it. We wrecked our own life. We died to that way. We're alive. Now we have a new way of living. We have a new culture. And we also have a new leader, and that leader is not you. We're not like pop culture that says, I am the best, and it's all about me. It's about Christ. And we find that this unity brings us into greater obedience to Jesus. And we should be looking for that in our life. It's a Christian walk. We'd be looking into the Christian, our church and our own lives, how we becoming more and more obedient to the ways of Christ. And as we do that together, we all agree that Jesus is boss. Look at how this helps us. It's not just me or the elders or somebody saying, these are the morals and you have to obey them, right? It's my way or the highway. Right? Because then you're like, well, who gives you the right to say those things, right? Because you might disagree. And then we're going to have wars and fights. Or it's not you out there saying, Aaron, this is the way that we should do things. No, we all agree. None of us have the right way of doing things. We need to be obedient not to each other, but to God. And so we say, this is true. And what God has for us in this, this is what we're going to live by. And if I'm outside of this in my life, then, then I agree with the rest of you. You need to come and tell me, hey, listen, you, this is the way of life. This is what is true. We need to live according to this. We need to be submissive to God, not our own desires. Because me living outside of those things leads to a dead way of life. We all agree, so it stops the fighting. It's a good thing. Next thing is that we, we are stabilized, we, we are submissive to Christ, and then in this, as we give our life under, to God's leadership, Look at this. It says that we're going to be joined together then in love. It says, From him who is the whole body, joined held, and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its own work. You see that? That a healthy church, a church that actually says we have this unity and it's based upon good doctrine, it's based upon good morals, it's based upon grace that God has given us, a church that is based upon that builds and becomes stable and it becomes more and more faithful. And in that, that kind of church becomes a church that is more and more growing in love. That's what holds us together. It's not law and it's not power. Think about the worst church experience that you could think of in your mind. Usually it's because it's about power, right? Some guy wanting to tell you how to live your life or being, you know, trying to just ram some type of theology or, or doctrine or morality on people without love. And it's awful and it's painful. That's not what holds a church together. What holds a church together is love. Which is why it's so important you understand that, that I care for you. And I don't just care for you, I love you. What is love? Caring for another person above yourself. And, and you need to be growing in that for each other. That's what it talks about in Acts. Remember it says the church when it was growing, people would sell property and care for one another and let each other. Why? That's, that's, they did it because they loved one another, not because they were obligated to, but out of love. As we grow in Christ, our church needs to be growing more and more in love. Caring for another, being compassionate with one another. That's the new way in Christ. It's not obligation, but it's love that holds us. And that's a purpose for this unity. But also it's this, that out of that love, then we also are active in service. Did you see that last line there? It says that each part does its work. Each part. Are you a part of the each part? Yes, you are. If you're in Christ, you are part of that each. 
you have work to do. Think about this. If, if my stomach one day just said, Aaron, I have been working since day one, right? I had just been working all the time. You know, anytime you just want to like throw some food in me, whatever, I process it, whatever, but I'm tired and I'm done and I don't want to work anymore, right? So it decides to stop. What happens to the rest of my body? Shrivels up and dies. It matters. You're not just about you. It's not always convenient serving God. It's not always fun, but it's always important. What you do matters to the rest of the body of Christ. That's why God equipped you. That's why he's blessed you. That's why he's gifted you. That's why he added you to this. You have work to do. And so you need to be about doing your work. And as we go along this walk of faith, you should be finding that your ability to serve God in not just one area of your life, but in all areas of your life grows. That's the walk of faith. There's a purpose to this. And so we're supposed to be equipped for ministry and built up and unified in faith and knowledge. We're supposed to become a tour, become Christ-like. We're supposed to be stabilized in truth. We're supposed to be submissive to Christ and bonded in love and acted in service. That's why we're unified. So what do we, how do we do that? Well, that's the practice of purity. Now we make this transition. The first half of all of this was all about our relationship to each other, right? That, that bonded in unity. That's how a church is. We're all together in unity in the spirit. That's how we relate to one another. But guess what? Is the world perfect? Is it easy? Or is it the church in a vacuum? No, it's a messed up world, isn't it? It's hard. It's hard to, it's so easy to love people when they're easy to love. But what about when we're part of this messed up, broken world? How do we do that? That's the second half. This is how we, we relate to one another. And so uh, before we start that, get this. There's a misunderstanding of the purpose of the church. Some people think that the church is here to change culture. I've heard it so many times over this election cycle, it makes me sick. We weren't here to change culture. This world is going to burn up. You have to understand that. Jesus didn't come to save this world, this culture, right? He didn't do it. That's why it's going to torch from, from Washington, D.C. to Moscow to anywhere in between. This world is going to be torched. Culture is, like, he didn't come to, to, to change this, Okay? That's not the job of the church. We're not here to change culture. Also, the second thing, we're not here to be a counterculture. Jesus didn't put the church in this world to be some type of reactionary force against the brokenness of this world. That is too small of a thing. He didn't change the culture, right? He didn't come. Jesus didn't say, I want all the cultures to be like this. No. He came in and he told us truth, and he didn't tell his people, listen, you should be this countercultural movement. That is tiny. That is too small. Why? This world ends. And all the countercultures in this world will end with it. Jesus came to save us from this world, and he invites us into the heavenly culture. You see the difference? It doesn't matter what the world does. I don't care how godly or not godly the world around us seems to be. This world is going to die. And God saved us from it. You died to that old way of life. You were alive in Christ, and now you are a citizen of his kingdom. And we have the privilege now of living according to that new culture regardless of what our world does around us. And will it bless the world around us? I think any time heaven enters this world, there's a blessing, isn't there? But we do this because of who we are. We trust God for its effect. So, as we get into what is this practice of purity, the purity is a new kind of culture, uh, there are different ways that we're supposed to live it, okay? And so, I think I push this. There are some things that we have in Christ. The first one is he tells us to stop acting like unbelievers. If you want to live according to this new culture, stop acting like your old culture. 
Makes sense, doesn't it? Now watch this old culture, verses 17 and 18. I think it describes the way of this world pretty well. It says, so I tell you this, I insist on it in the Lord. Now this is not an optional thing, right? Paul, who just before that said you're saved by grace through faith, that grace also says this, I insist on it. This is a necessity. You have to do this, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding, separated from the life of God because of ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality and to indulge every kind of impurity. They are full of greed. Does that describe our culture? It describes the culture of this world. Think about the last movie you watched. Was that kind of culture in there? That they have darkened understanding, futile thinking, hard hearts, lost sensitivity to God. That's just the way of the world. And it's not just the way of the United States right now. It's the way of the world. It's the way that the world goes. It's the old way of culture. Stop living according to that. That's not your culture anymore. You died to that. We have a new culture. Instead, it goes on and, and, and it says, okay, instead of being uh, futile in our thinking, which is just believing things that don't help. That's futile thinking. And think about the bookshelves you go in, into and all the other religions. It's all about this. Change your life to get better. That's going to help you. Well, it's like becoming the best swimmer on the Titanic, isn't it? It's still going down, right? This world is ending. It's not about you be getting better. It's about you dying to this world and being made new into something much better. Futile thinking, the way of this world is all about striving. That is futile. It's not going to help you. How about this? Dark understanding. Have you ever tried to read a book in the dark? Or at least when it's mostly dark? I've done that a few times. You know, you don't want to wake somebody up, so you kind of read and it's kind of dark, and you're like, and what do you do? You get the words that you know that are there, and then you kind of fill in the blanks with what you're pretty sure it probably says, right? And you kind of fill in there. And then if you ever read that same book in the daytime, you're like, oh, well, that's a much different story, right? I've done that. That's the way it says the people of this world live. They have just enough revelation from God, from what is around us they can see, that they get some, some, some ideas, and they pick those out, and everything else they try to fill in the blanks. And they typically sometimes get it really, really wrong. Why would we live like that anymore? We have the light of Christ. Jesus is the light of the world. He's given us the scripture, truth. We understand what truth is now. We don't have to live like that. Or to be dead in ignorance, not knowing who God is. We know who God is. We can access him. We know that we are saved by grace through faith. Don't be dead in ignorance or to be, have hardened hearts or to have a seared conscience, to be in our way so much that we would say, God, I don't even know what you have to say to me anymore because I can't even listen to it anymore because I've, I've owned my own sins so long. You don't have to be like that anymore. We don't have to be given to sensuality, figure that my life is all about the pleasures that I can get. No, there's a different new way of life. And wouldn't you like a better way of life than somebody who's got futile thinking and dark understanding and a hard heart and a seared conscience? And that you have to be slave to all of your desires? No, there's a different way. He says we can stop living like that. Why? Well, he goes on to say, because of what Christ has done for us. In fact, it says here, it says, be kind and compassionate. There's a different way. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as Christ forgave you. That's the new culture. Stop living in the old culture. Start living in the new culture. What is the new culture? What is the new way that we live? Be compassionate and kind. Forgive one another. And why do we do it? Because Christ forgave us. It all goes back to grace. Wouldn't you rather live a life of kindness and compassion and forgiveness than a life of a seared conscience and guilt and brokenness? That's what we're called to. So, how do we do that? Well, there's three things that he tells us that we can do. 
The first thing, three admonitions he tells us in the last couple of verses, verses 23 to 32, says this, put off the old self, put on the new self, and to put away sin. That's the three things that we have. So the first thing he tells us, um, how do we live this new kind of life? Well, it says, well, put off your old self, which is being corrupted by deceitful desires. There in verse 22. It's like this, when, when uh, Moses, uh, not Moses, when uh, Lazarus was raised from the dead, right? First thing Jesus said to him was, get him some new clothes and let him go free, right? First two things. Why? Well, was Lazarus, uh, was he dead until he changed his clothes? No, you know, he was alive. That's why Jesus said change his clothes. That's why it made sense. He walked out and he had dead clothes on, right? And so he walks out and the first thing Jesus says, because he's alive on the inside, that's the real him, he needs to wear clothes that match that, right? So let him change his clothes and then let him go free. It's like that for us. We clothe ourselves in this old nature, right? And people look at the outside and they identify who we are by what we have clothed on the outside, right? So like if I have like a runner's outfit on, you might not know me from Adam, but you'd be like, that guy's a runner. Why? He's got running clothes on. I'm not a runner, but I could have the outfit, okay? If I put on, like, hobo clothes and I sit outside, you'd be like, hey, that guy's a hobo, but I might not be. If I put on a tuxedo, I might look like James Bond, maybe. <laughs> you never know, but I'm not James Bond. But I tell you what, people look at the outside, don't we? We look at the outside and we say, that's who that person is. But God made you somebody new. You were dead and now you are alive, right? You were separated and now you are brought close to him. You are a foreigner and a stranger. Now you're part of his family. You are a different person, so your clothes have got to match it. The clothes don't make you who you are, but the clothes have better start matching who you are. And the first thing we've got to do is take off that old way of life. I used to be a separate dead sinner. That's who I was. I got to stop living like that. Got to take that off. I got to stop identifying with that. I can wear that dead old clothes all I want to. It doesn't change who I am on the inside, who God has made me, but it certainly is a silly way to live. Can you imagine how dumb it would be for Lazarus to walk around in grave clothes? You're like a zombie the rest of his life. And everyone would have looked at me like, you're like a dead guy that's walking around. Makes no sense. But how many Christians do this? God makes us new and then we walk around like nothing's changed. We have to put off the old self. And then we don't just take it off. We also then change into who now we are. Put on the new self is what it tells us. It says, put off the old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires and made, and, uh, made new the attitude in the minds, but also put on the new self, created to be like Christ, God, in true righteousness and holiness. We have to now begin to identify with who we really are. You're not a citizen of this world. You're the citizen of the kingdom now. That is who we are. So we're going to need to start learning how to act that way. And how do we do that? That's the last thing. As he says, now we need to put off fall, our, our old way. Okay? Put away sin. And so uh, in verse 25 it says, Therefore you must put off falsehood. Now there's an old way that we used to live, and he tells us very specifically, I love it in Scripture, and it gives us some, some things. There are old way of this culture that we need to stop living in, and there's a new way that we're going to start living in. And I want you to just keep a mental tally of the difference between these two cultures. The way of the world versus the w- new kingdom that you are now part of. Put off the old self, which is being corrupted uh, by your old self. Okay, And so the first thing that we're supposed to do is put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. Okay, So this world is all about deceit, isn't it? When's the last time you actually trusted an ad? 
right? Most of the time, we don't even trust compliments with people anymore. People say, hey, you, you know, you have this. You're like, what do you want from me, right? We have to stop being people of falsehood. That's the way of this world. We can actually be people of truth. Isn't that cool? That's the new culture. That's who you really are. How about this? Don't let the sun go down on your anger. It says in your anger, don't even sin. Don't let it go down on it. Instead, anyone who is, um, instead, do not give the, the devil a foothold. So think about this. The way of this world is about um, holding grudges, isn't it? It's not not letting the anger go. It's about holding on to it so I can have something against a person. That's the way of this world. You don't have to be like that. In fact, we're not supposed to be. We get to be people of grace and forgiveness. We actually resolve conflict. We don't fester on it. That's the new way. Or how about this that it tells us because we don't fester in it, we have a new way. It says that those who um, steal need to stop stealing. In fact, instead of that, they must work doing something useful with their own hands so that they may give to someone to share with someone who is in need. Think about the heart of stealing. You might think, well, I'm not a thief. Well, think about the heart of thievery. It's selfishness, isn't it? You have something I wanted. I don't care what happens to you. I'm going to take it for me. It's all about me. How do we fix that? There's a new way. Stop being selfish. Stop stealing. Instead, go and work. Why? So you can have enough for you? No, God's taking care of you. Why? So that you can be a selfless person. So you have something to give. We've been called out of a selfless culture or a selfish culture into a selfless culture, one that can help others and is kind. And it says this, and don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So it says, now get rid of all bitterness and rage and anger and brawling and slander along with every form of malice. Okay, that's the way of this world, isn't it? Look at the election. Would we say that there's perhaps maybe a little bitterness or rage or anger or brawling? Malice? Don't they try to engender that in us? That's the way of this world. We don't have to live according to that anymore. We have a different culture. Our culture is this. Instead, be kind and compassionate, forgiving one another just as, in, just as Christ forgave you. Do you see this new way of life that we've been given? I want you to worry. There's so many people who tell me, they say, Aaron, the Bible is all about these rules and all this stuff, but it's just, just no fun. Look about what we're giving up and what we're gaining. We're getting off the boat that says, I've got to lie. I've got to hide behind a seat to get my own way. I'm getting off the boat that says, I have to nurse old wounds and hold on to bitterness. I'm getting off of that boat that says that I have to be angry and mad because that's how I'm going to offend myself. I'm getting off of that boat that says, listen, it's all about me just being slave to my own desires. I'm getting off the boat that says, I have to be number one. And I'm stepping onto a brand new continent of grace that says, you know what? I have been forgiven so I can forgive you. And I've received kindness so I, I can be kind to you. And Christ suffered with me, actually even for my own sins, so I can suffer with you, even when you're difficult. And I can be compassionate, and I can be forgiving, and I can be loving. Is that really a bad way to live? Because that's the culture of Christ. That's the culture of church. That's the culture in us. And you say, Aaron, that's not perfectly what we see. I know it's a walk. But are you on the walk? Next week, we can talk about some more real practical things about some steps that we take in this walk, this new way of life. But it's not about law. It's about getting to live a better life, the life that Christ raised you into. You actually begin to live the real you. But this week, how do we begin that? How do we make sure we're taking right steps? Well, on your connection card, I have some ideas for you some things you want to pull that out and here's what we have 
On the back side, you say, I'd like, uh, or this week I commit to. Maybe this week some things that you can do. Maybe you memorize Ephesians 4.3. Make every effort. Right? Yes, Christ saved us. He did. Don't, try, don't make every effort to save yourself. You have been saved. Don't make every effort to change yourself. Christ is changing you. But I'll tell you what, Scripture does tell us to do something. Make every effort. And it's an effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bonds of peace. That's what we're to be doing. So maybe this memory verse, this passage reminds us, keeps us on track. We're not trying to change the world, but we're allowing God to change us. Make every effort. Memorize this passage, I encourage you. How about this? Why don't you read Ephesians 4? I talked about it today. Let the Word of God do its work in your life. Right? Let it illuminate that, those dark areas. Let it, go and actually read the Word yourself. Spend some time saying, I'm going to do that. Or how about this? Maybe you need to start living in unity. Maybe you've been far off from church and today you decided, hey, I'm just going to come to church just on a whim. I tell you what, we don't need, just need you because you're part of the body, but you need us. You need Christ. We were designed for each other. Join us in this great work, in this new culture, as we walk together in Christ. Maybe you need to, to be part of unity. Maybe you're part of the body and you're not walking unity that you're not doing anything. You're not doing your part. You're like, like in a... I don't know, like your pinky or something. I don't know what a pinky really does. But, you know, maybe you're there and you feel like you're just not, not active, right? You need to figure out what your, jo- what your role is so you can actually become active and start serving the body so the whole body can be built up. Do your work. Live in unity. Or maybe for you it's practicing purity. Maybe if you look at your own life, you recognize your own Christian walk has been this, has been unbalanced. Maybe you've been oftentimes way over into the grace side, and, but you haven't been actually going into the obedience. Maybe for you, it's putting off that old self. Maybe it's starting to say, you know what, that old person that I was, all those things, that's not who I truly am anymore. And I have to stop identifying with that person. I need to start identifying with who God called me to be. And in that, it means I need to start putting away certain sins in my life. That's going to be repentance. That's saying, you know what, I know these are things in my life that God says aren't right, and I need to change these things. And if that's you and you would like some help in some of that change, call me. Or I'm better yet, over here say I'd like to talk to a pastor. I'm here to help walk with you through this. That's what I do. Or maybe there's just something else that God through the Holy Spirit wants you to do, so let us know. If you have a prayer request, write it down because I will be praying for you this week. It's one of the greatest ways I love to to serve you. If you have another request, please let me know. And here in just a minute, we're going to take our offering. As we take our offering, I ask you to take these connection cards, put them in the offering basket if you wouldn't, please. And uh, let this be an offering of yourself back to God. Let's uh, pray for our offering uh, before we take it and for our our commitments. And uh, then we'll have the worship team come up. Heavenly Father, thank you for the way that you love us, the way that you care for us, the way that you have given us everything that we need to live the full life that you've called us to. But before that, Father, we just want to say thank you for giving us this new life. In and of ourselves, we were. We were dead. We were sinners. uh, We were separated. We were ignorant. We had hard hearts. Father, we didn't even know the own peril that we lived in. But you saved us by your grace, even when we weren't even looking for you. You came, you died on the cross for our sins. And we're grateful that you gave us the opportunity and the privilege to be called your children. And that you don't just call us your children, but that is what we really are. And you love us and you care for us and you've given us a new kingdom to be part of, so help us to live according to that new kingdom. Father, we're, we can trust you with this world and we can trust you with the next, but Father, I, I'm... I'm a little humbled that you would trust me with this life in this world, that I could be faithful or not. Help me to be faithful. Help this church to be faithful.
Father, for these commitments that we've made today, help us keep them and change us from the inside out through them. And Lord, in that, I pray that your kingdom will be built in us. And Father, we pray for the, the offerings and the tithes that we're, we're collecting. It's another example that you are a real God that are really involved in our life and you always take care of us regardless of what's happening. So Father, take these gifts, these, these tithes, and just another example of our trust in you, knowing that you're the one who can save us in this world and the next. And Father, we pray that's exactly what will happen. Use them to build your kingdom again in this community. And Father, may your, your kingdom, as it grows in this community, may it change many hearts and lives and bring restoration, Father, to, to so many who are far off. We ask in Christ's name, amen.